Today, we are going to continue in our study of Colossians chapter 2. And uh, it's, it's rather interesting in that um, Martin Luther, today is, is Reformation Sunday. We've got Luther who talked about this world with devils filled. It also happens to be Halloween weekend. And it all kind of comes together in one verse, Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And those words are referring to the satanic and the demonic realm. So he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right, that's the, that's the key verse. Let me read it again. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, there's uh, a number of ways to approach a text, to preach a text, uh, to teach a text. Um, one is uh, in a very ex- expositional way where you put your finger on every word and you define the word and you might cross-reference the word. Um, that's a way to exposit the scriptures. Um, there's many other ways to do it. And this verse is so dense with theology and it touches on so many things and it raises a lot of questions Another way to explore the meaning of a text is by asking a bunch of questions of the text. So that's the approach I want to take this morning. I want to ask 10 questions about this text, and we'll try to answer them, and hopefully you'll be, uh, you'll be smarter and you'll be able to fight Satan better. Okay. So question number one just has to do with the text itself. Why do some versions of your Bibles read differently than others? And what we're talking about here is the last two words. Uh, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, that would be. That's in your ESV translation. If you have a King James or a New King James, it says by triumphing over them in it. And, okay, that's a pronoun, and you would trace that back to verse 14, where the last word is the cross. So here, uh, Satan is triumphed over in Christ. Here, it's Satan is triumphed over, uh, over it, uh, or by it, by triumphing over them in it. Now, you go, why are they different? Well, because our English translations are based on Greek manuscripts. And here's one of these cases where not all the Greek manuscripts are identical. Some of them say in him, some of them say in it. And the different translators and the different scholars weigh the evidence, and some of them go with him, some of them go with it. Now, bottom line it doesn't change the meaning because it would be that Satan is ruled over by Christ in him. How? By dying on the cross. 
So here's one of these cases where the skeptics and the critics of the Bible go, um, oh, the Bible, all the manuscripts don't agree. We can't make any sense of it. Well, here's an example where there's a disagreement in, a, in the Greek text, but it doesn't change the meaning whatsoever. Now, the NIV has these words, by the cross. And here's a case. Um, you know, I know some of you don't like the NIV, but here's a case where after you study it all and you, you draw your conclusions, the NIV actually is correct, not in wording, but in concept. And the NIV says, that's what we do. We, we're a dynamic equivalent where we take the original and uh, we try to make it understandable. So, bottom line, why are there different, different readings in different versions? Because the Greek manuscripts have a different word there. What's it mean? What, what's it matter? Doesn't. All right. Question number two. Is military language being used here? He disarmed. And the answer is yes. This is a, a picture of a military victory. Satan is being disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The idea here is this. When a Roman army conquered another uh, army, they would have a victory parade. They would march back to the city, like Rome, with uh, the, the general in the front and the armies following his army following him, the defeated king, possibly in chains, being humiliated, and the, and the POWs, uh, being humiliated as they are brought through the streets and they're jeered at by the Roman crowd. So uh, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing, there's a military term, uh, over them in him. Now what's interesting is this. While most people, if you look at Jesus hanging on a cross, would say that his enemies disarmed him and put him to open shame and triumphed over him, this is saying don't trust your lion eyes because what's really going on is as Jesus is hanging there, he is triumphing over and disarming and shaming Satan and the, the, the demonic host. Now this uh, is called, this concept of Christ defeating Satan at the cross is, is the theory that's called uh, Christus Victorious. All right? Christus Victorious. Now, that gets into the next question. Is there a concern with Christus Victorious, with the concept of Christus Victorious? Now, uh, the answer is no and yes. Okay, what do you mean? Well, you may hear different preachers and read different authors who start talking about various theories of the atonement. When we talk about the atonement, we're talking about Christ dying on the cross. And it's real trendy today to talk about theories of the atonement. Now, this is referring to the fact that throughout church history, different theologians have speculated on the question, what was really happening on the cross? Right? What did his death really accomplish? What did the atonement really accomplish? And, and various ideas have, have been brought forth. 
Some of these just wacky ideas, okay? Others totally biblical. Now, I think it is absolutely fine and proper to say that Christ's death on the cross accomplished many things. Not just one thing, but many things. Christus Victor triumphing over Satan is one of the things, okay? And by the way, um, here's a book, 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die by a fellow by the name of John, you know him, Piper, right? He wrote this book in response to Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. He was concerned that people would go see The Passion of the Christ, see Christ crucified, see him resurrect from the dead, and walk away going, wow, that was a good movie, or that was a bad movie, or whatever you want to say about the movie, okay? But not know what the purpose of the cross was. So he wanted to come up with a book uh, explaining 50 things, 50 reasons why Christ came to die. It was supposed to be kind of an evangelistic track. It's way too complicated for most people. Okay, This is like really dense theology. But if you look at the table of contents, the number one reason Christ came to die, to absorb the wrath of God. Now that is called, and that's, that's the number one reason. Okay, That's called... Penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ came to take the penalty, to pay the penalty as our substitute. Penal substitutionary atonement. In fact, I would say all the other things that that happened at the cross flow from number one. So, you know, other things. To please his heavenly father, to learn obedience, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show his own love for us. Okay? Fifty of them. Number 42, to disarm the rulers and authorities. That's Christus Victor. Okay? So Christus Victor is a true concept that Christ defeated Satan at the cross. Okay? Now, why do I say we should be cautious about it, though? Well, there is a, in my opinion, a sinister reason why certain authors and pastors and theologians are talking about theories of the atonement, and that is to get rid of number one. To get rid of penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, So here's what I would say. Christus Victor is not wrong unless it becomes a substitute for substitution. You get that? So when, when you hear people talk about theories of the atonement and then they raise Christus Victor, you need to say, are they trying to say that's, you know, here's a theory, there's a theory, pick a theory, whatever theory you want, and let's not talk about this theory to absorb the wrath of God. Now, why would some people want to get rid of number one, to absorb the wrath of God? They want a kinder, gentler God not a bloodthirsty God, and they want a kinder, gentler view of man. Man is a victim, not a sinner. You're a victim of Satan, and Christ came to rescue you from Satan's clutches. But the emphasis there is your victimhood, 
Not that you're a sinner in need of a blood sacrifice. I googled around to see who was, was kind of moving in this direction. One guy, I won't name him, but one guy says this. In penal substitutionary atonement, violence is an intrinsic feature of God. God's bloodlust and violence drives the whole mechanism. It's paganism all over again. So the gospel you have heard and love and stake your eternity on is paganism in, in these people's minds. Okay? But in this theory, this, this theory he's proposing, God is nonviolent. God demands no blood price. More, God even deals with the devil nonviolently. God overcomes evil by self-sacrificing. The devil, like the white witch in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, the devil, like the white witch, craves blood, not Aslan, and not God. Okay, we'll come back to C.S. Lewis in just a minute. All right, but um, <laughs> these cupcakes don't really—they can't handle blood atonement. God's a nice, gentle guy. It's Satan who's the bloodthirsty one. So the reason Christ died was to rescue you from Satan, not from God. Okay? And I would say, what do you do with the entire Old Testament of the sacrificial system of, of animals substituting and then the pleasing aroma goes up to who? God. What do you do with Paul's letter to the Romans? where he explains what Christ did on the cross, and he sets up the problem in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Your problem is the wrath of God is hanging over you. Right? So uh, it totally misses the point of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, Christ voluntarily stepping up and being a sacrifice. And then what it does is it says, you're a victim. Feel your victimhood. Exploit your victimhood. Okay? Um, Mark Gelly, who is the editor of Christianity Today, comments on this. He says, it seems that Christus Victor highlights our state as victims. Substitutionary atonement focuses on our guilt. In Christus Victor, we're liberated from hostile powers out there. In substitution, we are forgiven and, and liberation is from ourselves in our addiction to our sin. Naturally, both models speak to truths of the human condition and both have nuances worth exploring, but I'm concerned at the rising popularity of Christus Victor when it comes at the expense of substitution. He's right on. Okay? But for some reason, when the Christus Victor theory is extolled by Protestants today, personal sin and guilt take a back seat, way back sometimes. And at least for today's Protestants, it has an uncanny tendency to downplay a sense of personal responsibility, which in the end sabotages grace. In my view, more than ever in our day, we need Christus vicarious, not Christus victorious, but Christus victor, uh, vicarious, which means substitute, okay? So um, is there anything wrong with Christus victor? Absolutely not. But Christus victor is dependent 
on substitutionary atonement. You get rid of one, you lose it all. Okay? Um, penal substitutionary atonement is the basis for Christus Victor. Because penal substitutionary atonement takes away any legal basis Satan has to accuse you. And that raises the next question. What legal ground does Satan have to accuse us and God? Okay, Satan's business is condemning you, accusing you, and accusing God of being unrighteous for forgiving you. So what is the basis that Satan has, the legal basis to condemn us? Well, our sin. He, he points to our sin and says this, you deserve to go to hell. And God, you're unjust if you let them into heaven. It's a legal play, right? It's based on Genesis 2.17, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, you said they deserve to die, and you're letting some of them into heaven. You are an unholy, unjust, unrighteous God to do that, and you deserve to go to hell, people. The legal basis is the wages of sin is death. Okay? So, if that's Satan's legal basis to condemn us and to condemn God, question five, how did Christ then disarm the satanic powers through the cross? So the disarming is taking away Satan's legal basis for condemning us. So, how did Christ take away Satan's legal basis? Well, here's where Romans 3 comes in. Now, Paul has been talking about Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What's a propitiation? Well, definition would be this. A propitiation is satisfaction or appeasement of God's wrath, turning it to favor. What this says is God's wrath was satisfied and then turned to favor. How? By putting forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood. Yes, he, there's blood involved. Okay. To be received by faith. You get the benefits of that propitiatory sacrifice by trusting in Christ. Now, Paul gets into, so, so here's, what, here's what we do. We go, how could a loving God send people to hell? Paul is now going to answer the question, how can God still be righteous and allow sinners into heaven? That's Satan's accusation. And he's concerned more about preserving the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God for allowing, like David's up there with, with, uh, with Christ right now. David's an adulterer. 
David's a murderer. How could David be allowed to heaven and God, into heaven and God still be just? Right? This, this propitiation was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, meaning David's sin had not been paid for. What about all those sacrifices? The blood of goats and bulls don't take away sin. It, this propitiation, was to show his righteousness, God's righteousness, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, um, to be justified is for God to declare you righteous and perfect so you can go to heaven. Well, I'm not righteous. So Satan says, you're unrighteous, you're unholy. God, you're unholy. So Christ dies in my place. So now that transaction is just, it's righteous. And he is the justifier, declaring me right in his sight. So by Christ dying on the cross, he takes away the legal basis for Satan to accuse me and you and God. Okay? Now, let me raise another question. Number six. Did Jesus pay a debt to Satan? Now, this, okay, we talked about different theories of the atonement. This is called the ransom to Satan theory. This is one of the theories that is wrong. Okay. The idea is that Satan is holding us captive and for us to be set free, a ransom, Christ's death, needed to be paid not to God, but to the white witch, Satan. Okay. The ransom to Satan theory was first taught by Origen back in the early 3rd century. But most of you have picked it up by osmosis through the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Okay, Boy, it sure seems like Aslan, the Jesus figure, the lion, dies and pays a ransom to the white witch. Right? Now, Some might argue, well, that's not what C.S. Lewis meant. It's just a story. Don't read too much into it. But lots of people have concluded that that's what the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe teaches, the uh, ransom to Satan theory. And what are we to do now with C.S. Lewis? I I wouldn't read his children's story to form my theology. I get my theology from Romans 3, not from C.S. Lewis. Okay? Every author, every theologian has their errors. Now, I did some research on this. There are some people, C.S. Lewis is burning in hell right now. (laughs) Sorry, Wheaton crowd over here. Um, (laughs) As you drive through Wheaton, smoke is going up. It's it's the smoke from C.S. Lewis's monumental museum over there. No. Um, I would say, here's what Piper says, so we know this is okay. Um, (laughs) Piper says, 
C.S. Lewis is the man who never wrote a bad sentence in his life. But he was talking about him as an artist, as an author. A lot can be learned from his storytelling and his wording and his illustrations are great. Just don't get your theory of the atonement from a children's book, though. Okay, Who was Jesus dying for? Was it Satan or was it God? Well, let's go to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. Clearly, it was God the Father pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Now, question seven. Doesn't penal substitutionary atonement place God the Father and Jesus at odds with one another? So that's the big critique that people have uh, of penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, The idea is God's this wrathful, bloodthirsty God who's going to kill us, but Jesus, the loving son, steps in the middle and says, no, I will die for them. Um, And then God has to concede to Jesus, and Jesus is the loving one, and God the Father is the wrathful one. Okay. Well, um, that assume, you have to assume they're at odds with one another. They're not at odds with one another. And Jesus isn't forced to go to the cross. He voluntarily goes to the cross. Speaking of his life, John 10, 18, no one takes it, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Okay? He's not a whipping boy. You know what a whipping boy is? When, a, when royalty, uh, let's say over there in England, I don't know if they... They probably don't do this still, but little Prince, is it George? Who's going to grow up and be king? Who's that little cute kid? Is it George? Yeah, little Georgie's going to grow up and be king one day. But you can't spank a little king. So, so what they would do is they would say, George, you were not nice. You ate too many cookies. You deserve a spanking. Grab a peasant from the street and they peasant is kicking and screaming and spank the peasant. There you go, George. That's a whipping boy. Okay? Jesus wasn't a whipping boy dragged kicking and screaming to the cross. He went to the cross. Now, what about this idea that God's this wrathful, angry God? Well, he is wrathful toward our sin, but the plan, the plan that God instituted was love. But But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an agreed-upon plan. I tried to think of an analogy. The closest I could come is this. Let's say um, there's there's two siblings, and one has kidney failure and needs a kidney. The other one says, I will give you one of my kidneys kidneys, but it's all got to be approved by their father. The father doesn't want either of them to be cut, but, you know, it has to take place. And the, the, the father gives his approval, the one child gives his kidney to the other, and then to make it even more dramatic, let's say the father's the surgeon. Okay, now I'm sure there's holes in that analogy, um, but... The agreed-upon plan, 
They can all have different roles and different elements of the plan. There's blood involved, but they're not at odds with one another. Okay? So now, if Satan is not the one, so here's question number eight. If Satan's not the one to whom Jesus pays the debt, what role does he have in this whole thing? Well, he, he is the condemner. He is the accuser. He is the prosecuting attorney who hates the defendant, us, and the judge, God. In fact, Revelation 12.10, the accuser of our brothers, that's referring to Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He was thrown down at the cross. He's an accuser. He's, he's the defendant, he's the, the prosecuting attorney who hates us and hates God. He's not the judge, nor is he the bailiff who collects the fine. He's just the ranting, raving, hating, prosecuting attorney. Okay? So, he's been defeated because Christ took away his basis for accusation. Now, question number nine. This is what some of you are waiting for. So is Satan no longer a threat? Whew! We got nothing to worry about, right? Nothing to see here. Move along. Satan was defeated. Well, here's where you have to bring in the whole of Scripture. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I thought Aslan was the lion. Well, it's a different story. Here, Satan is the lion. And lions, last I checked, are ferocious. And they can do damage. Okay? What about 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen? Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What that means is you find Satan not just out there on Halloween but in the church as an angel of light, proclaiming falsehoods. Be aware. Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. Then Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So how do we synthesize Christus Victor, Christ defeated Satan at the cross, with all of these warnings about the ferocity and the danger of Satan. How do we put these two together? Well, realize there's a huge difference between fighting a ferocious enemy and a defeated enemy who just likes to roar a lot and scare a lot and intimidate a lot and lie a lot. Most of Satan's attacks upon Christians, that is, are lies. So you need to put on the armor of God and take your stand knowing that lies are going to be coming at you. You know, in uh, A Mighty Fortress... And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And then he talks about 
uh, this, this rage of the enemy coming against us, one little word shall fell him. Now, uh, Luther was asked, when you wrote that, what's the one little word that will fell Satan, that will defeat Satan? Does anybody know what Luther said? Jesus? That's, that's the Sunday school answer, isn't it? Jesus? No. Liar. 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 Okay. I heard uh, a story by a southern preacher. Um, so you know I'm going to fall into my southern accent at some point. <laughs> and, and it was about a southern schoolboy. Here we go. <laughs> I can't help it. Southern schoolboy who uh, he was out at recess. And he caught him a bumblebee. And he took that, a bumblebee, and he, he pulled that stinger out of the bumblebee, but it was still a bumbling. And he put that bumblebee in his pocket. And then he was back in class, and during the class, he reached in his britches, and he pulled out that a bumbling bumblebee. And he reached over in front of him, and he dropped that bumbling bumblebee into the britches of the fella in front of him. Sound like Andy Griffith, don't I? <laughs> and that boy started a hooting and a hollering and jumping and a screaming. And the teacher said, what is going on? And the boy who put the bumblebee in his pants was snickering to himself. And he said, oh, don't worry. That bee's a buzzing, but he's got no sting. Yeah, okay, well, there's a long way to go. <laughs> That's Satan. That bee's a bumbling, but he's got no ultimate sting. Okay? Now, um, let me then do the last question. What is the essence of spiritual warfare? The essence of spiritual warfare for the Christian is knowing that Satan is a liar and he uses false teaching, he uses false thinking, he uses your emotions to deceive you. And you need to resist him with the truth. Knowing the truth and standing firm on the truth is the essence of spiritual warfare. Now, some people think that spiritual warfare is all about having exorcisms and going around casting demons out of people all the time. Okay? Have you heard of city mapping? Where you, where you get a map of the city and then you research, you got, like you research Maple Park and you find out are there any territorial demons hiding in the cornfields? And then we just march around the cornfields and we cast out the demons and then the church grows overnight. It's a spiritual warfare stuff that, that people are selling today. Have you ever noticed, okay, as you're reading your New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus is casting out demons left and right. I mean, everywhere he goes, demons here, demons, casting out demons. Then he gives authority 
delegated authority to his apostles to go out and cast out demons left and right. Okay. Then we turn to the book of Acts. Not as much demonic exorcisms are going on. Now, early in Acts 5 in Jerusalem, the apostles are casting out demons. Okay. Then the gospel moves to Samaria. Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans hated each other. So now when the gospel goes to Samaria, Philip, there's, there's mention of casting out demons there. And then Paul and his missionary journeys. In Ephesus, there is mention of him, uh, of demons coming out of people. There's also the mention of the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish exorcists, who didn't know what they were doing, and they were trying to cast a demon out of a man, and uh, the man became so violent, he beat them all up, and they ran out of the house naked, screaming. Okay? Because he was saying... By the name of the Jesus that Paul proclaimed. They, they, didn't, they weren't believers, but they had stolen Paul's formula. Okay, um, so, so there's mention of demons being cast out in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and in Ephesus. And then there's one other time, almost as a side note, in Philippi, when Paul is being followed by this slave girl who has a demon, and she's saying, oh, follow him, he knows about the true God, how to be saved. And after a while, he gets, it's just he's annoyed, and he casts the demon out of her. Okay? But by the time we get to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, not a mention of some formula for casting out demons. Now, Satan is mentioned but no emphasis upon casting out demons. Now, what are we to do with that? Now, some would say, well, we're not to do anything with it. You're to cast out demons just like, like Jesus did. So the normal Christian life should be you have your daily quiet time, you have your prayer time, you cast out a few demons, you go to Bible study. It just should be part of your normal life. Others would say Jesus and the apostles cast out demons and that established them as having unique authority from God, as the Son of God and as his delegates, his apostles. But as we pass out of the apostolic age, what's normative for spiritual warfare is simply confronting error with truth. Now, I think this is a case where people polarize one extreme to the other. Should be absolutely no confronting of Satan, or you should be doing it over your Rice Krispies every morning. Okay? I'm somewhere in the middle. I think there are times you may be confronted by demonic evil, a person with demons, or freaky things in your house. What do you do? Do you call in the professional exorcist? No. You take authority, 
Men, as the man of your house, take authority in Jesus' name. You have no right to be here. You must leave. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You must leave. That's it. Okay? But most of the time, spiritual warfare is knowing he's a liar. Spiritual warfare takes place in the mind and in the emotions. And it's confronting yourself with truth and reinforcing that truth to others. Let me get real practical. Some of you are struggling with your salvation. You're really trusting in Jesus, but Satan is telling you, you are such a sinner. You're not truly saved. You did this, 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 and this. You're going to hell. Spiritual warfare, folks, involves getting mad. It involves getting mad at Satan, at yourself, at your emotions, at the liars. And it involves taking him at his word. Yes, Satan, I am a sinner, but I believe with all my heart that Christ died for me. And he's the solid rock upon which I stand, not my works, not my perfect life. So I am taking my stand and basing my eternity on the promises of Scripture. Be gone. That's spiritual warfare. Some of us have so bought into the victim mentality that we're just full-time victims of our emotions, of our thoughts, of our fear. Take a stand on the gospel. Now, don't go fighting Satan yourself. You fight him in the authority of Christ. I base my confidence in salvation on him, on his promises, on his word, not on my righteous record. So some of you, what you need to do today is get mad and trust in the cross. You willing to do that? All right. Um, Now, I was going to do number 11, what's the armor of God? And then I think there's like four more pages. (laughs) We'll save that for next week, okay? Because Ephesians 6 has some wonderful stuff. Let's pray and uh, let's worship the Lord who defeated Satan. Lord, thank you for this reminder. Lord, I know there are people amongst us who are struggling. Whether it's their emotions or their thoughts And they're listening to the accuser. But he's a liar. So Lord, I pray that we would be able to, with confidence, maybe even with anger, grasp your truth, stand on your truth, cling to the cross, which is our only hope, and tell him to be gone. And may we walk in freedom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.